Hello there, podcast listeners, and welcome to the 13th of March, 2019 Hong Kong Stories podcast. I'm Rachel Smith. Hong Kong is filled with flora and fauna of all kinds. We have eagles and civet cats, wild boars and mangrove water snakes. We don't have lions or tigers anymore, though. The last tiger seen in Hong Kong was in 1942 and was believed to have swum over from the mainland or escaped from a circus. There's still plenty of wildlife, and the city has a surprising amount of green space. But there are a few things that are a danger to a fully grown adult human. Except, of course, other humans. This week, as we listen to the stories from Mel and Tracy, we'll be thinking about life, nature, and mortality. But before we get to this week's story, a huge thank you goes out to our loyal hometown listeners in Hong Kong. You keep us going with your continued support. Thanks go out to our overseas listeners in Turin, Italy, Fernie Creek and St. Ives in Australia, and Halifax in Canada. Thanks for letting our stories into your ears. Our March 27th show is well underway. Our storytellers are practicing and shaping their stories into the best that they can be. It's going to be a bit different from our regular shows, so if you're in Hong Kong, grab a ticket now before they sell out. You can find links through our website, hongkongstories.com. Hong Kong Stories. It's better than comedy. It's better than drama. It's real life. And now from our November show, performed before a live audience as part of the Hong Kong International Literary Festival in 2018 at the Taekwon Heritage Center in Central, here's Mel. My grandpa killed a man-eating lion. I say this while hanging out at a rooftop bar, cocktail in hand, looking out at a sea of glittering skyscrapers. I'm telling my friends about Zambia, where I was born and brought up, and how my family ended up there. And when I get to the part about my grandpa killing a man-eating lion, I realize how bizarre it sounds. More so to me than to anyone else. My friends know me as the city girl that I am. My idea of an adventure is riding a glass elevator all the way up to the 62nd floor. There's one in Wan Chai that I go to a lot. <laughs> I don't tell them about the grubby little girl who grew up climbing mango trees and catching tadpoles. Yes, she had the barefoot childhood most people would envy, but she doesn't exist anymore. And in her place stands an urbanite who doesn't want to get her heels dirty. Right there in the middle of my rooftop bar conversation, I'm transported back 20 years to my grandparents' living room in rural Zambia. It's Christmas Eve, and the sinking African sun is flooding the room in a rich red glow. We're all gathered around my grandpa's rocking chair, listening to his lion story like we did every year. And every year, we were hooked right from his first two words, silence reigned. He tells us how in his heyday as a skilled hunter, he was asked to help some villagers who were being terrorized by a man-eating lion. This lion had killed and eaten 22 people in four months, leaving only their heads as evidence. He and his hunting partner, Paulu, had been tracking the lion for days, until one day, 
they came to a clearing in the forest, and suddenly he froze, sensing danger. Slowly, he turned his head to look behind him, and there the lion was, waiting, ready to pounce. Taking quick aim at the lion's nose, he pulled the trigger. His bullet hit home, and he returned to a great deal of celebrating in the village. My grandpa was a hero. In fact, I come from a whole family of heroes. My great-grandpa came out from Britain in the colonial days, riding up the Zambezi in his socks and sandals to open a school and a hospital. My dad put his clinic on the back of a truck so that he could access the most remote villages and give them free dental care. A sense of adventure and a big heart is what defines everyone in my family, but me. I spent this dream childhood of mine wishing I was somewhere else. I hated the inconvenience of rural life. Everything was always dusty or broken or both. And every time we had to pull our car out of the mud, I vowed to myself that one day I would live in a land of tarred roads and shiny shopping malls and escalators. So, as soon as school finished, I was out of there. I worked my way to London, and then China, and now eventually Hong Kong. And here I am, making my dreams come true in the most expensive city in the world. And it's all so exciting. Trying a new cuisine, buying a new dress, opening an MPF account. But every, every so often, my... I kind of get brought down squarely to earth by my, by my mother's text messages. One day it's, we got a new dairy cow, and now all the school children have milk. Smiley face, smiley face. <laughs> the next it's, we have had no electricity for three days. Frowny face. I don't know how to respond to these messages they seem so far removed from who I am. It kind of makes more sense if, if, if they were sent from a complete stranger. I don't know how to share my life with my family. But most of all, I don't know how to tell them that I never want to go back to Africa. Growing up there, I saw all the good things my, my parents were doing and I also saw a sense of hopelessness in the eyes of the people that they helped, and it scared me. I applaud my family for all that they do, but the truth is, I want none of it. I want to live here in a city that pulses with ambition. Here I see a sense of striving, always striving for more, for bigger, for better. And I'm surrounded by hustlers, and that's what inspires me. So at the end of the day, I am happy, my family are happy, and we don't understand each other at all. But what am I going to tell my grandkids on Christmas Eve? I've never come face to face with a lion, nor would I ever want to. What am I going to amaze them with? In my heart, I ask my grandpa if he feels let down by the fact that I did not inherit his bravery. And in my heart, he reminds me 
that it took a great deal of courage to move to a whole new continent on my own, learn a new language, embrace a new culture. And even though my choice of lifestyle is so different from his, it is every bit as much of an adventure. So walking back from the, from the bar that night, my phone flashes as a text comes in. It's from my mom. We are going to see the chief to celebrate the rain festival today. Umbrella emoji. <laughs> it's good for people to have their own adventures in their own ways. I don't think I'd relish an encounter with a lion, although celebrating the rain festival sounds pretty nice. Mel is a fantastic storyteller, and she practices and hones her craft at our free weekly workshops held every Tuesday. You can find out where and when on our website, hongkongstories.com. Come along and start your own new adventure. Our second story today also deals with a deadly threat, but of a completely different nature. From our show in 2017 called 24-7, which was live at the Fringe Club in Hong Kong, here is Tracy. The first time I saw the future, I was eight years old. We lived in a two-story colonial house about an hour outside of New York City, and it was the 1980s. Looking back now, at around the same age that my parents probably were then, I am sure the entire thing was cocaine and key parties. <laughs> Michael Jackson's Thriller had just come out, and we listened to it on compact disc players, which had just been invented. And everybody walked around wearing pleated front leather pants. My brother and I once sat down and tried to come up with words to describe this time in our lives, and we settled on the crisp autumn anorexia of our suburban nouveau riche, which we thought also would be a good name for a band. <laughs> anyway, the second story of our house had an open banister, so my brother and I could lay down on the beige carpet and we could look through the railing straight through to our entrance foyer. We could see the brass chandelier and the paisley wallpaper and the ornate knockered red-painted front door. It was a Friday night, and my parents' friends, the Levitts, had been over for dinner with their children. It was a Friday night, the Jewish Sabbath, Shabbat. If you're religious, it starts at sundown, and it signals the beginning of a day of rest and of prayer and of reflection. If you're not religious, like us, it begins at sundown, and it signals the beginning of happy hour. And that really is my memory of all those childhood Shabbats. My parents' friends milling around the living room, holding wine glasses like goblets with two hands, and they'd be filled with ice cubes and brimming with mass market rosé. This particular Friday night, dinner had drawn to a close. It was around 10 o'clock, and my mother was seeing the Levitts out. But you could tell, none of the adults really wanted the party to be over. They moved slowly, and they threw their heads back, laughing. My brother and I looked down on the scene, and we willed it. Just go. 
We were tired, and the Levitt's kids must have been tired too. Finally, Mrs. Levitt turned. She waggled her acrylic nails at my mother. She blew her a kiss. And she turned, and she herded her children out into the darkness. And it really was dark outside. It was pitch black because we lived in the suburbs. And my mother must have realized this, and she reached to turn the lights on on the driveway so Mrs. Levitt could get her kids into the car. And as she reached, Mr. Levitt reached too. But he reached for her body, and he pulled my mother to him. And they stood there, pressed against each other, smiling. I was eight years old, and I was looking down on my mother holding Mr. Levitt the same way she held my dad. I turned my head towards my brother to see if he was also watching this and if his heart was beating and if his eyes were wide. But if I was eight, then my brother was six and he had a toy fire truck and he was just running it up and down the banister, not paying attention. I turned back to the foyer and I saw that my mom and Mr. Levitt hadn't moved an inch. Just Go, Mr. Levitt has to leave. I willed it with every cell in my body. Mr. Levitt has to go far, far, far away. I never want him to come back to this house. I never want to see Mr. Levitt again. And two weeks later, Mr. Levitt dropped dead while he was jogging. The man had been a lifetime athlete. He was a marathon runner. And yet, he dropped dead on the side of a country road. So I guess that's less like seeing the future and more knowing that I had caused it, which is a strange power for a kid like me. I mean, this child of, of boxed wine, swilling Jews, we weren't particularly religious. We never sacrificed for our faith. I mean, the most we ever did was throw around a few Yiddish words and go to other people's bat mitzvah parties. And yet, God had listened and I had assassinated Mr. Levitt with (laughs) just my thoughts. So, something like that. Good and evil, and ice cubes, and happy hour. And to this day, that's still how I practice my religion, with a raised glass and a terrible bottle of light pink wine. Thanks for listening to this story brought to you by Hong Kong Stories. We'd also like to thank our core members today, the people who step up and help us to run this nonprofit group. Thanks for all you do to keep us going. If you want more information about any of the things that we do, go to the website www.hongkongstories.com. The music for this podcast was created and performed by Andrew Robert Smith. Everyone has a story to tell.